Well, I do want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, that minor prophet book back in the, um, towards the end there of your Old Testament. Hopefully by now you have been able to mark its location, and if not, as I think I've said every week, there is no shame looking in your table of contents to get there quickly uh, so that you can mark it for future services. Amos chapter 3, verse 9. Verse 9. Now I do want to answer a question that I hope you've been asking. And it's a question that I often have to remind myself the answer of as I'm studying Amos. The question is this, why Amos? Because the message of Amos is hard for me. It's hard for me personally as God works it over in my heart week after week. It's hard for me to communicate because it's a weighty message. It's a heavy message. It's largely a message sent around, centered around God's judgment of His people. And why would anybody in their right mind want to dive deeply into a message that is almost exclusively about God's judgment? I think I said at the very beginning of Amos that often we want to come to church to be encouraged, right? There's enough weighty stuff happening in the world and there's enough burden on our own heart and our own mind because of our sin. So why then plunge a church or force a church to walk through a minor prophet that is all about God's judgment? I have a few answers. Number one, quite simply, because it is Scripture. And it's just as important as any other section of the Bible. Amos is just as important as Genesis or Romans or Philippians or Psalms or Isaiah or anywhere else because it is, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, it is God-breathed. And so certainly it matters to God and therefore it matters and should matter to God's people and it's applicable or relevant to God's people even thousands of years after it was proclaimed and recorded. So I remind myself, why Amos? Well, because it's the Bible. It's God's Word. And there is life in God's Word, even in weighty passages. Number two, I remind myself that we preach through Amos and we walk through Amos for our own personal examination. You've heard me say for years, so hopefully you know this is my fear and my conviction, that I do fear, specifically in our context, that there are many who think they are right with God or think that they won't have to give an account to God when in fact they absolutely will. And they may think they bear the name of, of God in some form or fashion or that they can claim some heritage or lineage of God, or that they can mix Christianity with any other kind of religion, which by the way, um, without saying the name, I have a student uh, who believes that very thing, that this person can take what they like of this religion and that religion and this religion and mix it all together to make their own religion that they actually enjoy. 
and think that makes them right in terms of their spiritual condition. And Amos is a glaring message to say that is not the case. That if your life is prosperous or beneficial, if your country is prosperous or beneficial, you're living in times of peace, your political parties in power, whatever it may be, we cannot claim that those are signs of God's unfettered blessing if our lives are marked by rejecting God and walking in wickedness. So Amos is a, a timely message because it forces us to self-examine, which is good. And thirdly, my answer is the subject of Amos is an often neglected subject. Hopefully it's not a neglected subject when we talk about the gospel. Any gospel preaching church can't really fully share the gospel without considering, at least briefly, the judgment of God and humanity's sin against God and subsequent accountability to God. But unfortunately, we do occupy a time in which most churches, though they claim Christianity, don't actually preach the gospel. And if they do claim to preach the gospel, it's often a mitigated version of the gospel. It's often a shortened version of the gospel where judgment is actually neglected. It's easy to find churches who actually don't just ignore preaching about sin, but they do what Paul says in Romans when they give approval to sin. And so I think the larger context of God's church lacks a real understanding of God's judgment. Specifically that God does not change His standards. God does indeed have standards. And that God will execute a judgment that is just like the judgment we read all throughout the Bible, even in Amos. And so it's important for us to consider specifically this morning in Amos 3, the nature of God's judgment. Because we don't really fully understand something and comprehend something, nor can we even apply something until we begin to understand the nature of that something. And once we begin to really understand the nature of that something and actually believe that it's true it then has influence upon us it then impacts us so understanding even as born again believers the nature of god's judgment causes it to influence us for some it influences that them to realize they're actually not saved and they do need to repent and be born again for some it causes them to realize that they need to be sharing the gospel with their loved ones because this judgment, it is inevitable. And for others, brothers and sisters, it makes us eternally grateful for the gospel. I read to you a little bit from a, a former slave named Francis Grimke last week. And Francis Grimke um, escaped slavery and actually began to pastor the 15th prep. Presbyterian Street uh, Church in Washington, D.C., and he wrote extensively, actually, on the subject of preaching and particularly its helpfulness for people. I read to you a little bit last week of what he said. I want to read to you a little bit more this week of what he says. He says, it is well for the preacher to know definitely what he's going to preach about and have clearly before him what he wants to say about it. 
and to be duly impressed with the importance of the subject on himself, but also particularly on its importance to those that he's preaching to. The truth that is thus to be presented will be vital and then will be sure to lay hold of its hearers. He goes on to say, The tendency generally is to forget God and to pass over lightly things which have to do with our spiritual welfare, which is his way of saying we give little thought to spiritual matters. He says instead we allow ourselves to become absorbed in the mere temporalities of life to the neglect of things of permanent and enduring value. But our duty as ministers of the gospel is to keep the people ever in touch with spiritual things. To keep ever before them the thought of God and of their responsibility to Him. Of character building and of eternity. Of the endless life beyond the grave. This we are so apt to forget, but which we must not be allowed to forget. Because living is a serious business involving grave responsibilities. Responsibilities that carry with them consequences that actually do reach beyond this present life. Fortunate for us, if we live in the consciousness of the true meaning of life and its relation both to time and to eternity, will then actually be steadily influenced by them. Maybe that means more to me because I read it than it does to you hearing it. But the point is, it is the job of the preacher and thus the job of the Christian as a listener to God's word to have eternity ever set before them. To not merely live in terms of temporal realities but to consider that there actually is indeed life beyond this grave. And that life beyond this grave, whether it is in condemnation or in paradise, it is eternal. And the things that we do in this life and the way that we even view this life matters in that eternity and matters in that life beyond the grave. And considering and contemplating the nature and the judgment of God, even out of weighty, difficult books like Amos, help us to set our perspective straight and thus our priorities straight as we contemplate not just temporary life but eternal life as we contemplate it for ourselves and its effects on our eternity and as we consider it for those that we love that's my justification for picking amos as a book It's also my lead-in to today's subject in Amos chapter 3, the nature of God's judgment. God has, as I said last week in chapter 3, engaged in really what is a first formal technical speech of judgment. There are seven or so in the book of Amos, different speeches where God pronounces His judgment in different ways to help the Israelite people of the time realize all the intricacies and details of God's judgment from all the different perspectives. Last 
in the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 6 through the end of the chapter, God has referenced His judgment, but primarily there He's concerned with laying out Israel's transgressions, their sins. And intermingled with that, like verse 6, He says, I'm not going to revoke the punishment. Verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, He actually gives an inclination of what that punishment will be. I'm going to press you down in your place. And there's going to be no escape. By the time we get back into chapter 3, we spent most of our time last week in verse 2, highlighting that God's telling Israel, because of the unique relationship you shared with me, you will endure punishment unlike other nations. Remember the biblical principle that's actually even embedded in society, that the more that you know, the more you're responsible, and the more you're responsible, the more you will have to answer for. That's Israel's predicament now. God will judge the other nations that we read in chapter 1, the pagan nations. They will be accountable to God. They will give an answer to God. He will render judgment against them. But His judgment against Israel will be different because, verse 2, I have known you, and you only, out of everybody else, you bear a unique, special relationship. And there's the word in verse 2. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And then God goes on in verses 3 um, through 6 to justify His punishment. It's a cause and effect sort of principle. Nothing happens without a reason, and that includes God's judgment and so he says at the end, verse 7 and 8, where we finished last week, he hasn't done this in secret, nor is he going to judge them in secret. The lion has roared, and he's done so publicly. Are you not afraid? And he has spoken. Are you not going to share his message? Well, he's continuing in that same speech now as we look at verses 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 14. Let's begin reading there in verse 9 as we try to consider the nature of God's judgment mentioned in chapter 3, but is universally true. He says, verse 9, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. 
that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end. Declares the Lord. As we consider the nature of God's judgment, I'm going to begin each thought with God's judgment will be something. Beginning in verse 9, God's judgment will be public. He mentions two pagan nations there in verse 9, but he's not preaching against those pagan nations. He's preaching here against Israel. He mentions those pagan nations so that they would come and witness, come and see. He says, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the major cities of Philistia, of the Philistines. He mentions Egypt, which we know very well. Both of them foreign nations that were, by all regards, enemies of Israel. Enemies because of long-standing battles. Enemies in Egypt's case because of the history of slavery that they share together. And he tells these foreign nations in verse 9, Come together, assemble yourselves, and come stand on the mountains of Samaria and watch. See. See two things. Great tumults and oppression. Come and see what God is doing. It's a picture of enemies Israel's watching their destruction take place. It means Israel's punishment, Israel's judgment, Israel's destruction will be so obvious that even her enemies will know that God, their own God, is now against them. Watch. Take note. Witness the chaos, the tumults in her. She's, she's uncontrolled and without order and great confusion is taking place. Riots. Stand on the mountains, you foreign nations, and see the oppression in her midst. That could mean one of two things. It could mean the oppression that Israel causes upon its own members. That's one of the accusations God has. and Not accusations. That's one of the, the problems God has against Israel. They were oppressing their own poor and needy. Far from caring for them, they were, as he said in chapter 2, trampling their head in the dust and using them for personal selfish gain. That's one possible rendering or reading in verse 9. But I think more likely is God's calling these foreign nations to come witness His oppression of Israel. Come watch as I oppress Israel like Israel oppresses its poor. Israel has no mercy, and so I'll have no mercy. Israel shows no grace. I'll show no grace. Israel shows no peace and kindness. I will show no peace and kindness. Come see 
my heavy hand of judgment rest upon them. If you consider this, you might realize how especially humiliating this would be to Israel. We all have this desire to appear better than we are. We all have this desire to appear more well-off, more wealthy, more peaceful, more prosperous, more powerful, more, more in control, more successive than perhaps we really are. Very few people walk around in public showing their feelings on their sleeves. Much more so is that the case when we stand in front of our enemies. We want our enemies to know that our, our strength is, is true and real and we're blessed people and a powerful people and that we're doing greater than we actually are. But God is not going to let Israel have that chance. He's telling them in verse 9 that His judgment is going to be conducted in such a way it will be obvious to not just their enemies, but to the whole world. Brothers and sisters, that is the nature of God's judgment. God does not execute His judgment in secret. He does not hide His decisions. He's not ashamed of His decisions. He has nothing to hide when it comes to to his judgment, his judgment will be displayed to the public, not just in the Old Testament, but one day in finality. In Amos's case, or rather in Israel's case, in the book of Amos, his judgment is public for several worthy reasons. It showcases, number one, his standard of justice. Even to you and I, it showcases His standard of justice. That God does not relax His rules and warnings. Number two, it also shows the consequences of resisting Him. Rebelling against Him. Disobeying Him. If you're under the grace of Christ, praise God, there is therefore no more condemnation for you. You've been spared from such judgment, spared from such wrath, because Christ took those things on your behalf. But if you're tottering, and if your faith isn't sure, if you're actually not a born-again believer, but you think you can just be around Christian things and that it's okay, God will hold you publicly accountable. For Christians, brothers and sisters, God didn't even relax His standard of judgment or His standards of righteousness and holiness for us. Not even for our salvation. So we've already looked at in Amos. God always punishes sin. And the only difference between us as Christians and the unbelieving world is that Christ was punished for our sins. Which means we won't be. But if you're not in Christ, this is, this is the judgment of God that awaits you. Public judgment, public punishment for sin. Because God does not relax His standards. This is always what happens to those who reject Him and rebel against Him. And so His public judgment 
is a warning to all the other nations of the world. And his eternal record of his judgment of Israel and Amos is a warning to all the generations of humanity throughout the world. And his public judgment one day and his in the end before his throne will be done to bring him immense glory as we consider his perfect justice and holiness and righteousness that our God our God is not corrupt, our God is not a liar, our God does not ignore sin, our God does what is right every time. So the lesson that I want to stress right now is if God upholds justice like this to Israel, then no one else should think that they would escape God's judgment. We find this warning standing even today as we fast forward to the New Testament. This principle of God's public judgment, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, Verse 16, he says, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Nothing's hidden from his sight. Nothing will remain hidden from his sight. Luke says uh, in 12, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, he records Jesus saying the exact same principle. He tells his disciples and followers, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he goes on to say, because nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And so whatever you have said in the dark, it will be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be, claim, be proclaimed on the housetops. It's tempting to think that our sin may be hidden and that we may get away with our actions. But the truth is God's public judgment against Israel is how God executes judgment. And the same will be for everyone in the world. Number two, verse 10, the nature of God's judgment. God's judgment will not only be public. Verse 10, God's judgment will be just. He looks at Israel and he says, they do not know how to do right. Now, I just referenced this earlier back in uh, the first part of Chapter 3, God's judgment is never without a cause. He's, he's not some uh, God out to get humanity. Uh, he's not vindictive or, or irritable or petulant or simply wanting to crush the hopes and lives of, of people for the smallest of things. We've actually already seen in Amos that he's been incredibly patient with them for generations and thus has been incredibly merciful towards them for generations, giving them opportunity to repent. But the time has now come where repentance is no longer optional. And they have, according to their own sin, remember verses 3 through 6 of this very chapter, they have stirred up God's judgment. They have roused the lion against them because of their own actions. Or If you go back to verse 2, I will punish you for your iniquities. Every one of them, great and small. He's reminding here 
but that God's judgment is not without cause, not without reason, that He's been brought to this point because of their deeds. And what is, what is their deeds? Well, verse 10, it's the summary of their condition. They don't even know how to do right. It made me think of of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the days of Noah, when God declares that He saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was what? Only evil continually. My mind is the same principle in chapter 3, verse 10. They don't even know how to do right. Now notice there, the indictment is not that they don't know what is right. Because they do. And how do they know what is right? They come from the patriarchs. They come from the preservation of God. They're of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they had, through Moses, been given the law. And they had since then been uh, given judges. And they had been given kings in their past. Uh, even in their recent past. And they'd been given prophets. God's warning and God's mercy and God's instruction to say, that's the path of destruction. That's the path against righteousness. Don't go down that path. Rather, follow the ways of the Lord and trust your heart to the ways of the Lord and love the laws of the Lord your God. Isn't that Psalm chapter 1? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of sinners nor stand in the way of sinners or walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. It's been no secret what God determines as right and wrong. So it's not that they're in trouble because they didn't know what was right. They're in trouble because they don't do what is right. Now certainly that word right there refers to deeds and actions, the things that they do or don't do. I think it has deeper implications also. I think it means they don't even know how to be right in terms of righteousness. Because very rarely is it that we just don't do right it's because we don't do right. It's because we're not right on the inside. Right actions come because there is no righteousness in the heart. And righteousness and doing what is right not only go hand in hand, but they emanate from God Himself. Whatever God deems is right is actually right. And so to be right and to do right is to do and be what God declares is right. Israel's problem, according to God in Amos chapter 3, is that they don't even know how to do right. It's, a, it's an emphatic, intensified way of saying it's, they're not just not doing right. They don't even know where to begin. Well, one might ask why that's the case if they if they certainly knew what was right and they had no excuse but to know what was right. Why don't they know how to do what is right? It's because long ago they had rejected God's word. Generations ago they had rejected God's word and now this generation has no real idea of what God's word is or says. 
they don't even know where to begin. More than that, God goes on. Their lack of being able to do what's right is manifested in the rest of verse 10. They don't even know how to do what's right. First, they're not righteous. Second, they're actually proactive in their inability to do right. And they store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. You think about all the pagan nations that God condemned in chapter 1. You think about Israel's history dealing with pagan nations, specifically the ones that are mentioned in these very verses, Ashdod or the Philistines in Egypt, and those are the marks of those nations. Violence and robbery. Now Israel's come to act and be just like any other pagan God-forsaken nation. They're marked by violence and robbery. And specifically, we've seen in Amos, they're marked by violence and robbery against one another, against their own people. Oh, if I could say, if I could just slide off and, and make a, a, a side note about modern day Christianity on that word violence and the despicable way that we treat brothers and sisters in Christ it is less aligned with the gentleness and compassion and kindness of Christ and more aligned with the apostate, rebellious Israel. Let me step on and make another side note. Quit. Just quit. For the sake of all that is holy and godly, quit trying to debate anything on social media that matters for eternity. Some of you, that really doesn't matter. And some of you, it really does. Israel is not bearing the marks of God in violence and in robbery. They're bearing the marks of all the godless nations around them. But notice what God says about them in verse uh, 10. It's not just that they have violence and robbery. Look, they store it up. I thought of Joseph in Egypt. What did Joseph do when he realized that a famine was coming? He stored up grain to get, it, to get Egypt through the, the famine. And God actually uses that to, to save his people as there's also a famine in the land of God's people and they have to come to Egypt so that they can live. But it's because, because he was planning ahead. He was storing things up. I wonder if that's true for Israel as well. They're not just committing acts of violence and they're not just committing robbery, which, by the way, again, is against their own people. Remember, we saw that they trampled the, the heads of the poor into the dust and that they robbed the poor so that they could pay for their own wine to celebrate. Not only are they committing those acts, God says they're actually storing them up for future usage. In other words, it's not just a mark of what they do. It's something that they cherish. It's something that they hoard. It's something that they're greedy for. They want more of it. Violence and robbery. For the sake of self-promotion and self-indulgence. But that's, that's not all. They store these things up in their strongholds. That's an important Old Testament word. It can 
carry several different meanings. It has military overtones for sure, but it can also mean things like not just a fortress, but even a palace or the center of the city that might have the most protection around it. It's, it's the guarded places of a society. It's not just where the people would go uh, to hide from invading armies. It's where any kind of group would store what they treasured. They're not just storing up violence and robbery. They're putting them in their most secure facilities and their, their most defendable facilities. They're storing up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Why? Because they cherish it. They love it. It's their identity. And why is that the case? Because it gets them what they want. Who cares if it's against the character of God? It gets me what I want. God's judgment will be just. Because sinners are the opposite of who God is. And when they're the opposite of who God is, they set themselves against Him as enemies. And when they set themselves against Him as enemies, they deserve the judgment that they get. Are you able to bear with me for just a bit longer? Verse 11. God's judgment is not just public, verse 9. It's not just just, verse 10, which means God's justified in His judgment. Verse 11, it is comprehensive. Comprehensive. And I'll forsake my notes here and run very quickly. Comprehensive because from verse 11 to verse 15, we find several different ways where God is going to execute his judgment, where his judgment will be manifested. And he's going to manifest his judgment by destroying a few things, removing a few things. Number one, their security. Because of all of this, of verse 10, there's the word, verse 11, therefore, God's going to first judge comprehensively by taking away their security. An adversary is going to surround their land. Now imagine that. You have an army big enough or multiple armies big enough that surround you. It was certain defeat because it meant no escape and no help was coming in. You were totally surrounded. The only thing left to do is surrender. They're not surrounded by flowers and fields of fancy. They're not surrounded by their friends. Adversaries surround their land. And look what they do. They bring down their defenses. You won't be able to stand. You won't be able to defend yourself. And your strongholds will be plundered. Again, remember, we talk about strongholds are not only the places, the fortresses where people may hide, so the people may be plundered. It's also where they kept what was valuable and important. And in this case, in Israel, let's at least connect it back to verse 10. That's violence and robbery. So your treasures of violence and robbery, they're going to be plundered, taken from you and used against you. 
or whatever security you're trusting in, it's gone. Number two, God's comprehensive judgment. It's not just going to remove their security. It's going to remove any hope they have of rescue. God uses a quick picture here in verse 12. As a shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion. Well, he only typically gets a leg or a piece of an ear. In other words, shepherds know, people know, that if a lion gets after a sheep, by the time the shepherd gets up enough courage to try to rescue that sheep away, the lion's jaws are already clenched. You might only get a leftover piece of leg or ear. And then God says, listen, in verse 12, so shall it be with the people of Israel. God here in Amos likens himself to a lion often. The imagery is supposed to be clear by this point in chapter 3. God is the lion. Israel is the sheep or the lamb. And the lion of God is going to clench his jaws against Israel. And they may only escape with leftover legs and pieces of ears. In other words, we might use the word a very small fraction size remnant. Those who really fear God and walk with Him. Only those will be spared from the lion's jaws. He says they're going to be spared with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Remember, their country right now is incredibly prosperous, incredibly um, wealthy, economic military peace and luxury was abounding. And those things that they enjoyed the most, their couches and their beds... There's only going to be fractions of that left. Those things they loved, God is going to devour. So when the Lord rises up to judge, particularly a whole people or a whole nation, only a remnant who really genuinely love God will be spared. Next, God's going after their religion. Here in testify, verse 13, against the house of Jacob. Verse 14, on the day when I punish Israel, when all this is going to come about, I'm going to punish the altars of Bethel. Now Bethel was the really the capital city. It's also where the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, set up his... Um, pseudo-Jerusalem, and he did that for political purposes. He didn't want his people going back to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid that they would uh, forsake their loyalty to him in the new northern Israelite kingdom. And so let's establish some form of worship in Bethel like they would have in Jerusalem. And so he builds some golden calves, much like in the wilderness after they were saved from Exodus. And he sets up altars and Temples, much like the ones in Jerusalem, what he's doing is he's mixed a whole bunch of pagan religions with with Jewish religion, religions and Jehovah religions. And he's what we say is syncretically or mingled them all together so that they worshipped in Bethel with some semblance of what they did in Jerusalem, only uh, um, sparsingly so because. They were mixed with pagan practices. 
generations now, even multiple kings now, after that first establishment of the first king Jeroboam we're now actually I think if I can remember correctly in the days of Jeroboam the second chapter one verse one were generations removed and they are still practicing the same way only this time after many generations removed they think that they're doing okay in their religion after all we live in a time of prosperity and we live in a time of peace how is that not a blessing on our religious practices And God says, I'm going to punish your altars. In other words, I'm going to remove your religion and reject it altogether. And look, he says, I'm going to cut the horns of the altar. I'm going to cut them off and they are going to fall to the ground. It's a symbolic way of complete, total desecration and defi- uh, defiling what they regarded as a holy religious practice, God regards as defilement. And He says, I'm going to reject it all. We, you and I, anybody in this world, whether they claim to know God or love God or not, are not permitted to invent their own worship. God defines the parameters of worship. God defines the parameters of true religion. And he's coming straight after Israel's fake and false religion. Which they would have no doubt sought for help and sought for comfort. And he says, I'm going to remove all your comfort. Well, lastly, verse 15. You said I could keep going. I heard Jerry. So let me get verse 15. God's going to destroy all their luxury. All their wealth. And all their comforts. I'll strike down the winter house along with the summer house. Those are definitely seasonal things, which means God's going to to destroy in every season. God's going to judge throughout the year in every uh, time and season through the year. But it also is a reference to those who own multiple houses. I winter here and I summer there. God says, I'm going to destroy them both. Along the same lines of wealth, the houses of ivory perish. The great houses, he says, palaces come to an end. You know how alarming it is or how common it is for us to see our wealth and our materials and our possessions as signs of blessing and therefore as signs of comfort. If only I'll have more money. If only my retirement account's bigger. If only I have a newer car, a bigger house, better stuff, the newest phone, I'll feel more secure, more established, more prepared for the future, more grounded. God's going to remove every ounce of their wealth and comfort. Everything they were trusting in. Think about all of these things that they might be trusting in. Their military security. Their luxuries and their the rescue that they might have if anybody does try to come against them. Their religion. And then their wealth. All the things that we find people today trusting in. 
God says, on the day of my judgment, you will have nothing to trust in. Nothing for security. Nothing for hope. Nothing for escape. Brothers and sisters, this is the nature of God's judgment. Is it not? It's public. And it's just. And it's comprehensive. And as we have said at every point in Amos thus far, our only escape is Christ. God just does not take sin lightly. He does not permit it to go unchecked or unaddressed. And one day everybody who's rejected God will have to stand before this kind of a judgment. And in that day, whatever you're trusting in, if it is not Christ, you will find it benefits you nothing. Are you trusting in your works? Your religious acts? Are you trusting in your ethnicity or your biblical or religious knowledge? Are you trusting in your nationality or your heritage or your reputation or your stature in the community or your money or your influence or your perceived importance? Let me tell you, it will benefit you nothing before God. As the famous catechisms of old say, our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. The only way to be found standing when God's justice is aroused against sin in the last day is if you are standing in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we just saying that because He lives, I can face tomorrow. That doesn't just mean Monday. That means heaven. That means eternity. That means future. That means the coming consummation of God's redemptive plan. The only way we can face tomorrow is because Jesus is alive. And why does the resurrection matter so much? It's because we can only be united to Christ if Christ is alive. And if Christ is alive and we are united to Him, finding ourselves in Him as a refuge, we too will be alive. And this destructive judgment will not be ours. I'll say it again because it's worth saying. Because Jesus took this judgment for us. Christian, do you remember who you were before God? You were probably like me and others, trusting in all sorts of things to get you through this life. Probably like countless others in our context, thought you were right before God simply because you considered yourself a good person or because mom and dad or grandma and grandpa were Christians or because you made some emotional decision at church camp. You are not ever right before God unless you are right in Christ. Unless Jesus took this judgment for you unless Jesus bore the penalty for your sin, unless Jesus was punished in your place, unless you have trusted in Him, placed your faith in Him for salvation, unless He's paid your price so that you might be pardoned and rendered as righteous in God's 
sight. That is the only way that we have victory both over sin and victory and freedom from God's eternal judgment. The question now falls to this for you and for me. Are you really safe in Christ? I told you at the beginning, one of the reasons I wanted to preach Amos is to force us as hard as it may be and as much as we may want to squirm, force us to examine. To see the truth about God's judgment and ask, are, are we really right with God in Jesus? Or have we rejected him? Have we made up our own religion? Have we refused to heed his word? Raised up our own prophets? Or have we taken Christ for who he is in his word? And believed on his promises? And tasted new life? And the freedom from God's wrath? Replaced with God's love? a question before every one of us if you have come to realize by God's immense mercy and grace that your salvation may not be genuine that you actually do need to be born again first praise God and number two come to him in faith and be saved he's promised whoever calls upon his name will be saved brother or sister if you know that God has saved you. If His spirit, spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, the same as last week. Hallelujah. Doesn't that stir our affections for Him and our adoration for Him and our devotion for Him and our thankfulness to Him? It most certainly does. I trust if you ask God and His Spirit, He'll lead you in the proper way for you to respond. Father in heaven, We thank you for your word, that it instructs us and it warns us. Even when it's hard and heavy to bear sometimes. You still use it to sanctify us. You use it to make sure that we are truly trusting in Jesus. You use it to remind us that these sorts of judgments are coming upon the lost world unless they hear the gospel and believe and be saved. You even use these, what we might say are frightening passages to help us see the glory of your salvation. And to be so motivated by your goodness shown to us in Christ. Strengthened and thankful. Whatever be your purpose and desire, God, we ask that you would accomplish it with full effect even for your people, using passages like this to remind us to flee sin. It is never, never worth it. That the only path to life comes through the offer of Jesus. Help us to trust Him now, to throw away that which hinders us, to rest 
and the grace that is unending and unmerited and eternal. We ask your blessing on the application of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.